Hi folks, welcome back to On Call with Insignia, where you go on call with leaders innovating the future of Southeast Asia's internet and digital economy, or as we like to call it, ASEAN Innovation. I'm your host, Paolo Aquino, and we're back with another Insignia Academy Afterthoughts episode. It's been a while since we've had one of since we've had one of these episodes where we actually talk to alumni, mentors of the VC Accelerator program run by Insignia Ventures Academy. And as you can see in my background, I also especially changed the back, my background for this episode because we'll be having one of the alumni actually of the very first cohort of the program. And to give our listeners some perspective, we've actually just started our fifth cohort this week as of recording. I think it's coming out in a month from now or so, or a few weeks from now. So we'll be well on our way to the fifth cohort. For anyone in our listeners who's interested in learning more, I'll, leave, I'll put up a QR code here somewhere. I'll leave the link in the podcast description for you guys to get in touch and, and learn more. But this show is really about one of the alumni, as I mentioned earlier, none other than Joey Takle from cohort one. So it's pretty interesting because after joining the program, she joined Tonic, one of the companies that Insignia Ventures has had the pleasure of partnering with. And we've had Greg on the show a couple of times in the past. So it's great to finally meet another leader of Tonic and get to know her story as well. So thanks for coming on the show, Joy. Hi, Pablo. Thanks for having me. I'm really honored to be on your show. And so a little, I'll pick a few liners about Joy before we head into the meat of the discussion. She's had a more than a decade of experience in the fintech financial services sector in Southeast Asia and India. Prior to Tonic, she was, you know, part of fintech venture builders, like forum agencies like CRI, SIL, Priscilla, and the Info Spectrum as well, like advisory, where she really got hands-on and learned about due diligence, investments, and all that, and really leveled up by joining Insignia Academy, as I witnessed myself firsthand. <laughs> but we'll, we'll definitely hear about what she has to say, I guess, I guess in retrospect, <laughs> several, I, I think. Actually, I was about to say several years, but like more than a year now from that experience. For our listeners who are, you know, curious about what you do at, at Tonic, I mean, your your positions at strategic development, but maybe you can give us a little bit more depth and, you know, a little bit detail as to what exactly that entails when it comes to, you know, a digital bank like Tonic. Maybe you can introduce yourself by sharing three numbers or sets of numbers that best describe what you do at Tonic today. Yeah, sure. Hi, guys. Just to introduce myself, I worked in India before moving to Singapore more than seven years back. And I've been part of the Southeast Asia ecosystem ever since. Here in Southeast Asia, I did m and deals. Then I worked in a venture builder, which built consumer fintech companies, including Tonic Bank. That's where I built my skill assessing the gaps in the market. And now I am handling strategic development at Tonic Bank, focusing on research, strategic partnerships, and MEs. So when it comes to numbers, choosing numbers for this role, I will say it's a set of infinite numbers because I do infinite research to find rational and irrational numbers with the capacity to differentiate between them. I think it's definitely an interesting way to put it. Maybe you can share a little bit about maybe an example of. I find the irrational aspect that you talk about quite interesting with respect to strategic development. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. How, how do you like have to sort of differentiate between the irrational and rational aspects of it? You know, like I said, you know, I have to do research and I have to put out my analysis based on that and then work on partnerships. So I'm amazed, right? So there, there is a gambit, gambit of research that you have to do on things and it can be infinite. And some of it is 
you know you can get in depth in a lot of things and get lost into it and it was very irrational to you know like work on that that part of research so you have to be smart enough to know which part to pick up and which part not to pick up so when it comes to especially when it comes to a strategic partnership finding the right fit is really important i mean you and living in the philippines you know that there are a lot of things to do and there's a lot of untapped potential there but which which way to go is something that you have to rationalize definitely filtering out through the noise finding out yes. what what's relevant for the business i'm i'm going to shift gears a little bit now that you know we we've introduced you and go into your journey at insignia ventures academy we're going to start off just by sharing a little bit about how you found out about the program because uh, just before that you were already doing a lot of things in southeast asia at the time and what made you decide to actually join and take up this 12 weeks <laughs> of you know additional work <laughs> so when i was in the venture window i i got the perspective of building and scaling a startup even understanding market gaps in the startup and which which area to scale i was also involved in fundraising for these portfolio companies so i would speak to a lot of vcs to understand their perspective or whether they would want to invest in the company and that's how i met yang lang and insignia team because we pitched some of the portfolio companies to him mm. so i was aware of insignia's credible track record in the startup ecosystem and one day i saw this post on linkedin that insignia is doing this innovative accelerator program in southeast asia and it said investing in startups by doing it so i got interested and i applied for it and after that i spoke to gil she gave me a quick rundown and in depth program details and i thought oh wow this sounds interesting i should take on this and and get to learn about other segments because if you can see my past experience was more focused on fintechs or right. maybe a little on finance so i wanted to perspective on other segments and how to build pieces across other sectors so then i can take portfolio management or strategic development roles and also build connections and it really did help me there are two things i was yeah i wanted to note is first i think you the way that you found out about insignia in particular it reminds me of like what you do in the program right which is to pitch startups <laughs> to uh, right. and so it's like pretty like cross full circle i guess that's that's what you ended up doing at the academy and then the second is for those who don't know like in the program you get assigned to teams and then you get assigned into sectors to to work on and actually look for startups and talk to founders and then more about what sector were you focused on at the time so like i said i i have experience in fintech so i did not want to take fintech i was very sure of that i have keen interest in health tech although i don't have background in health tech but i've always been following some startups from before so i took up health tech at that point what was the experience like having to like venture into a new sort of sector that you as you mentioned you had interest in but you didn't really have that kind of like experience the same way that you ha- have had with fintech i think it did give me a better perspective i think i was i was very limited in in the sense of understanding that sector to be very honest i i had invested in one of the startups in india and health tech it through a syndicate so i had that keen interest because of that it started from there i don't think i ever build a thesis or i ever try to understand the gaps in the market there 
that really helped me and had different perspective. Like I realized at that point, primary segment, for example, is really developed in the region, but the secondary secondary segment is not. Like the specialized secondary segment that is not really developed in the health tech. And many of these startups, which like Doctor Anywhere, for example, they are getting into this secondary segment. So it was pretty interesting to understand those those type of things in health tech. So I guess for anybody who's interested in learning about a sector, but they don't seem to have time to do that because of another focus that they're having, I guess. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll make time for you to, to do that. Yeah, moving on, what, was the, what would you say is the highlight or what's the highlight of your experience in those 12 weeks? Was it, you know, the IC meetings? Was it talking to founders? Was it just meeting with your teammates? Which part of it? I think all of it, I would actually start with the meeting entrepreneurs because I was already surrounded by entrepreneurs. Even when I was working in India, I had to speak to them. So it's very exciting to talk to them. So it's starting from there. It was really exciting to talk to different entrepreneurs. You don't get to do it in your daily life. Otherwise, if you're not in the VC, right? The other thing is connecting with people in the ecosystem through this, this cohort, right? And in, in my cohort and across other cohorts, I met amazing people and with great minds who I could reach out to at any given point. And not just not just the cohort people, but even even Insignia team and Yinglang, I could reach out to them at any given point. So thanks to you guys, it's so super active. So I'm able to do that. But this aside, I think even the IC was an eye-opener of what happens because as a venture builder, I, I was on the other side of the table and I actually had bird's eye view there, not a complete picture of what happens. So it was an eye opener of what happens during the IC meetings. I think every time I improved the way I would look at the startups. Speaking of eye opening experience, like what is one takeaway that still sticks with you today, you know, and something that perhaps you apply concretely in, in your work at Tonic? One of the things is that, okay, let's see, there is a space which is considered as a blue ocean. Then why is it a blue ocean? Is there no product market fit for it? Or, you know, like it won't be acceptable in this region. Let's say in the other regions, there was acceptability. You could validate in the other region, but maybe in this region, you cannot. And that was one thing. And blue ocean really doesn't mean that it is blue ocean. That's also another thing that I realized. I think that that's a pretty interesting insight not to take blue oceans for granted and, and really understand what are the drivers and what are the limitations and all of that. And before I move on, and since, you know, we sort of trying to tie things together back to your work at Tonic, but before I get into that, I wanted for you to actually share some advice you might have, as I mentioned earlier, we're starting cohort five and by the time this comes out, it will just be in the early stages for the cohort and we'll be already, I guess, you know, well, I guess starting to accept applications for the, you know, future cohorts as well. So what advice would you give for, you know, the current and incoming venture fellows of the academy? So I would say if you are an aspiring founder or you're a founder, then this will help you build, in, build connections and understand the perspective of a VC. So of course it will help you in understand, understanding and doing fundraising. And if you aspire to be in a VC or you are an angel investor, or you want to be in a strategic development role like me, it will help you understand how to assess the market gaps. 
it surely helped me. So I think it will help the fellow IBA guys who are joining or yet to join. It will definitely help them. And it's not just till there, you know, till understanding the market gap, but it's also doing deep due diligence and also building a network. I believe in this ecosystem. That's a very important thing to have. And I like that she actually covered a lot of the different bases and sort of the different demographics that we we typically have in the cohort. And, and there's certainly something for, for everybody, but even yourself coming from sort of the venture building background also. And now after the after Academy, you joined Tonic, maybe you can sort of help us bridge the gap in that story. Like how did you end up joining Tonic? What made you decide to be a part of this this company? And I, I know you, you've probably known Greg through your work at Forum as well. Yeah. Maybe you can share a little bit about the conversation was it something that Greg said that convinced you or was it sort of where you see did you have your own sort of like personal thesis like I, I should you know digital banks is, is going to be the, the future you know I should ride this ship out yeah so like you rightly said I worked with Greg so I was in his venture builder and I stayed in touch with Greg even after I left the venture builder because I always looked up to him like a mentor and before joining, I had another opportunity at hand. It was really good opportunity. So I called up Greg to consult him, but I called him up because I was unsure if I should take on this opportunity because there were some conditions for this opportunity. At that point, he said, hey, I have this strategic development role and I think you're suitable. So I considered Tonic opportunity instead of the other one, because at that point, Tonic was at building and scaling mode. And Greg has always given me the liberty to work and think outside the box. Plus, I believe from my venture builder days that the Philippines has a huge untapped potential that you can scale with the sizable bank deposit and not wholesale liabilities. And so I think like one of the big factors based on what you've shared is definitely like Greg has, has been somebody that you really like look up to, you mentioned as a mentor. So my next question is what has been sort of the biggest thing that you've learned from Greg or that Greg has taught you and you know throughout the years that you've worked with him both in Tonic and, and even Forum as well. Yeah I think it's very hard to pick out things. Uh, I've learned too many things from him. He is the most smartest and most benevolent person that I've ever worked with. He's very adapted finding market gaps and building and scaling a company. So it's very hard to pick out anything from him but the Key things that I learned is in my work, which I implement also today, is thinking out of the box and at the same time being solution oriented with whatever whatever you've thought about and working as a team. So it, it's really was amazing. Particular, was there a particular experience, could be from Tonic, could be from, from Forum, that you know you were like, I'll never forget this thing that we <laughs> that myself and, and Greg also like went through and, and worked out. There were too many things, but if I have to pick out one thing, like working as a team, it's very funny, you know, I'm not very good with building, doing PPTs, honestly. And pitch decks is a very important part of fundraising. <laughs> I made it in a very simplistic way for one of the portfolio companies and he took it up and he made it really nice. And then he's like, you did a good job. I was like, I did not do this, but I just put the basic stuff in the deck. So he's like, oh, it's we as a team, never you or I. So. That's the amazing thing that, you know, I can never forget. No, mm. none of my bosses have ever done this. So I was amazed yeah. with them. 
And actually, you know, guess what? These are also the core values of Tonic. Yeah, he still implements all of this today. I guess Greg shouldn't listen to this episode. It might all, it might all get to him. <laughs> but definitely a lot of a lot of credit where credit is due. And I think it's great to know that, you know, it still carries that from uh, throughout his whole, like all these experiences that he's had. And he's definitely been there on that journey as well. And speaking of, you know, tying things together from, you know, your past experiences at Forum as well. You, you talked about learning about the Philippine market and that sort of building up your conviction to join Tonic. But is there anything else from your past experience, fintech venture building, that you know has impacted the way that you approach your your SD role? Aside from the Philippines, aside from the PPPs, <laughs> uh, <laughs> anything else that that maybe something in terms of like how to help build these companies from the ground up. So in the venture builder, we had many, we had four, actually we had five portfolio companies and consumer right. uh, fintech. Uh, one of them was Asia Credit, which was into consumer lending in the Philippines. The other two companies had limited presence in the Philippines, but because I was on the constant scanning mode in the Philippines, so I saw the landscape change since 2018 and understood what worked and what didn't work. And every day was a learning curve since then, and we're still learning from our mistakes. If I have to give an example of Asia Credit, what we understood is that doing longer tenure loans is, is the play. But if you have to do longer tenure, you need capital to deploy. Right. And unless you have access to cheap capital, then you have to use equity, which lowers your ROE. So this is what happened with Asia Credit. So now we can obviously leverage on this experience and understand how to grow the loan book. That's something that's helped me even today in my role. And that really is sort of also explains the way that Tonic uh, operates as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah sort of as an as a evolution of, of what you guys learned at Asia Credit. And, and certainly like that model, you know, Tonic being a pioneer in the Philippines for that and to an extent the region as well, now that we see like a lot more Digital banks are coming up, even more recently in the news, like Cgroup launched their, their digital bank in Singapore. And so we're, we're seeing that, you know, digital banking is definitely a key part of how fintech is maturing in the region. So from your perspective, seeing that you're in the sort of like the front lines of all of this, like how does, you know, digital banking in Southeast Asia or even more specifically in the Philippines, how do you think it has to mature even further? What are the gaps still missing out there? And what role do you think Tonic will play in doing this? So interesting question, but I think it's still not at a maturing stage, I would say. What lacks is interoperability between the digital banking platforms and payment systems, which is a major obstacle in growth of digital banking in Southeast Asia. So interoperability allows seamless transactions between platforms, digital platforms and systems, just like how it is in India, UPI. In any ecosystem, the first thing that develops is payments and then rest of it follows. So I would really say there is still some time for Southeast Asia. So not yet at the maturing stage. The other thing is enhancing customer experience and innovating products that are unique to customer needs in that region. People don't want to stand in long lines. Today, they just want everything done quickly on the phones and they want personalized experience. The traditional banks in the Philippines have realized this value of the seamless experience that we and the other digital banks are giving. So they are also trying to get into it. If you look at our app, our Tonic app, 
you'll see that once you open it, the first thing you that will pop up is your first name, and you'll get reminders like "Hey, love." So that's personalized experience. That's a super easy to do any transaction on Tonic app on the go. That's something that obviously engages the people, and obviously the rest of the products will follow, and there'll be more stickiness to customers. Just a follow-up question there, like especially with the first point about that interoperability, which I think is quite interesting. Do you see UPI as sort of like the model to follow for other markets in Southeast Asia, or do you think there should be like another approach that's not necessarily from the public sector or the government, sort of government driven? Maybe it could be that the fintech ecosystem itself can do it together. It doesn't have to be the government, but I still feel there is a need to do it. And this is at least my opinion for the ecosystem to hustle and bustle right. like it is in India. And so moving into another big trend that we're seeing in fintech is how ubiquitous it is becoming in a lot of user experiences. And you talked a little bit about that as well, how consumers want things to be a lot more seamless. And so that goes into even non sort of financial service apps as well, like where you see payment services, you know, you're able to access insurance, access loans without necessarily having to open a banking app, for example, just directly from whatever marketplace you're using. So how do you see the, this sort of evolution of, of digital platforms to sort of capture that financial services aspect playing out? And how do you see that impacting businesses like Tonic, which are, you know, purely financial services, digital banks? I believe that this additional feature, this add-on feature adds to the stickiness of the other product offerings and obviously increases their LDV. But with an exception of Grab and few others, many of the B2C players partner with banks or non-banks for this other product offerings. For example, Traveloka, they had a former lending product, which they ditched. And they restarted again after partnering with Bank Jago for loan disbursement. There's another example in the Philippines that I can give you this HR tech company called Scout. They partnered with a salary-backed lender to give out loans to employees who are using Sprout platform. So this definitely gives avenues for uh, fintechs like us to seek for partnership and leverage on their data. So I don't see that as a negative, I see that as a positive. Speaking of, you talked about Sprout and HR and sort of the different partnerships. And when I had Greg on my podcast last time, the, the latest news on Tonic was the Mizuho round. And now I think one of the more recent news from Tonic towards the end of the year was the acquisition of Tendopay and, and sort of that, you know, expansion into these like employee financial services. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and what that has meant for, for Tonic, especially given the whole push towards, you know, these secured loans as well. And then all of these like different products that you guys have on the lending side. So last year we acquired this platform called Tendo Pay, which is a payroll enabled financial solutions platform with the salary back lending and BNPL play in the Philippines. So it's me and my colleague who had worked on this deal. We had scouted for, for this deal because we felt that we have the other products like unsecured loan and we were we were launching this big loan which is a home equity loan and we, we thought that this would add on to the secured lending gambit of products that we have because you know the risk is lower in this sort of product so we decided that, that this has a better strategic fit than acquiring any other company and believe me we scanned through a lot of companies in the Philippines. <laughs> 
just a whole other like academy exercise going into yes system. yes it was totally an academy exercise <laughs> right which right. we had to do it in within six months right right and kudos on, on on getting that deal done and you know opening up that sector for for tonic and that leads, sort of leads me into my next question about i guess what excites you about tonic moving forward and do you see more like similar kinds of partnerships into sort of sectors where, where you can partner to launch more different types of secured loans i know you already have like for the home home loans and then now for for employee needs as well obviously you can't share about the details but in general like what direction do you see tonic going and, and what excites you about you know about tonic today just to give you a little perspective on the market then i will talk about what products we have and what we plan on doing so what we realized was after scanning through the market that the unsecured consumer lending market in philippines through formal and informal channel is just 15 to 20 billion USD. Mm -hmm. And it has a potential to grow three, four folds uh, because Philippines unsecured consumer loans to GDP is, is very low. It's lowest in the region. Mm -hmm. And there are very few players who have captured the market and especially in consumer lending. So I think there is, there is a, a chance for us to grow it. Philippines has had an inflection point. So we already have four unsecured lending products and one of them is unit profitable and we are in the scaling mode for it so we are seeking partnerships for that one and we have two secured loans one is Sindo's salary backed loan and the other one is home equity loan so I think we are good with the number of products that we have we also have a payment product so I don't think we want to increase the number of products but we will now this year only scale we have a back a backup of 150 million in deposit so i think we are based very well in terms of resources and in terms of the loan book that we can scale the way that you explain it it seems like you come up with a product and then you you sort of come in to actually work out all these like partnerships to actually scale its adoption is that is that correct to say yeah yeah that's correct i mean now right now my job is to search for partnerships so this year has been only about that. And so I guess more work for you this year, since you mentioned like yeah. the whole focus is scaling. Since you joined the company in around last year, April, right? And yeah. you know, the market has gone through turbulence and I guess even today, it still seems to be going through some turbulence. So how, how have you seen that affecting your, has that affected your work at all in terms of like approaching various partners and working out these deals? Or do you, is it actually sort of the opposite story in, in the digital banking space in the Philippines where it's it's very much, you know, on the rise? W which side do you see it? <laughs> no, I think it's definitely increased my work, for sure. If I have to talk about last year, last year was so-called fundraising winter for startups in Southeast Asia. So there was a lot of consolidations. And what I saw was there were, there were a lot of M&A deals that were completed highest from 2014. So... Tonic was well positioned in terms of resources, so we could take advantage and acquire TendoPay instead of organically launching in the market. But for this year, the story is a little bit different. We already have acquired a loan and I, I think we already have a lot of loan products. So for this year, we can see that, okay, there was SBB fallout, which probably may not affect Southeast Asia fundraising in a very big way. But there will be capital constraints as VCs will be cautious about funding the operations of the companies. 
So we have also seen since last year or last to last year, we have seen the loan books of other competitors depleting. Even because of SEC gaps, it's started to deplete. So one of the things that we saw was that, you know, like this gives us opportunity to make good strategic deals, have good strategic deal terms with other people. So it's it's a nice time to be when you have the resources. That actually leads me into my next, into the next corner of the show, which is the Minute Masterclass. And you talked about, you know, trying to sift through, find out the right terms for, for deals and find the right partners. And that ties in also to your earlier, actually your first answer about, you know, seeing between sort of the rational, irrational, and trying to, to find what's the best fit for Tonic. So if you were to give a class on strategic development, but more specifically, actually, filtering through potential M&A opportunities or deal opportunities for a fintech like Tonic, like what would be the one key takeaway you would want, you know, the fintech founders or operators in this class to take away or to bring home? I think I gave you one takeaway on the untapped market and, okay. you know, and like if it is huge, then why is it ocean isn't always yeah. a ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ocean. But sometimes, you know, like for example, what I realized was in the BNPL segment and the non-discretionary spend, there was a company called Jungle which shut down because it was a blue ocean again. So non-discretionary BNPL was a blue ocean. So that is why it, it is, it's something that they felt that they can, you know, like scheme, but we were not unit profitable. That's why they had to close down. I think that is the point that I would stress on takeaway for fintechs. So path to unit profitability and time it takes to get there is another focal point that they should have. And many of the fintechs underestimated. I think the thing that you need to realize is realizing it takes time to build a scorecard and achieve for a sustainable cost of risk. Blue oceans are blue oceans for a reason, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you have any, I guess as a quick follow-up to that, do you have any framework or sort of heuristic or mental model of how to approach assessing the, the risk of these opportunities? What are the sort of like the top considerations that you have? So when it comes to assessing fintechs, the typical way that we went was obviously understand how big is the market in that segment itself. Let's see even if it is for salary back. How big is the market? What's the market share of the competitors? That's one of the things. And whether it is an inflection point, whether you can grow in that market. And the other thing is understanding their uh, detailed loan book and what is their vintage write-off, what is their role rates. These are some of the things that we did in our initial due diligence for, for a fintech company. Stuff that you can also get a taste of in Academy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it sounds very, you know, very similar, although I, I'm sure like a lot more, as you mentioned earlier, it took you like six months to actually work out everything and, and find what you guys were, were looking for. So definitely a lot of work required. So on that note, wanted to move into a, a chiller section of our conversation, the rapid fire round. So just some short answers, short and sweet answers for these fun questions, hopefully for you. First up is what digital technology innovation excites you the most today? Since I'm in fintech, I'll really say this in the fintech segment, it's blockchain as a mode of transaction. So I think blockchain can be more efficient than traditional transaction methods as it enables cheaper transactions. Because the network is decentralized and automated, it can operate 24 by 7 without the need to need for intermediaries to do manual processes. So right. obviously this reduces the cost. And particularly for cross-border transactions, also it reduces frauds. 
So your Union Bank in Philippines, they have I2I platform, which is a blockchain-based technology for remittances and cross-border payments. So it's existent in Southeast Asia. If you were to invite, be invited to produce a Netflix or OTT series, what would be the title and what would, what would it be about? Briefly? Yeah, although this is an old series, I will still produce Silicon Valley. Because hands down, it's my favorite series. If you are in a VC or a startup world, you can relate to each and every character in that series. It's super hilarious. I would make it on Southeast Asia ecosystem and I would name it Block 71. One of the characters flies over to, to Singapore and, <laughs> yeah, and starts, off, starts off a new gang. Looking back now, what is a skill? It could be a soft skill or hard skill that you believe you should have learned back in your time as a student. I think I should have learned the knack to connect to people in my university days or maybe a little earlier or later in my career. Having said that, I learned this skill in my life very, very late and it didn't come very easily to me. If there's something you could automate in your job just by wishing for it, what aspect of that role would it be? I think I'll be repeating myself, but I wish I could automate prepare, preparing PowerPoint presentations or my finding and analysis. That would be great. And I don't think that's really like, because uh, some of our guests have given really like, seeing like magical things like teleportation, but your answer is something that could happily with where chat GPT is these days. I, yeah, I think very feasible in the near future. <laughs> What's your favorite go-to destination in Southeast Asia, apart from Singapore or what trip are you most looking forward to taking in the region? I think my favorite place in Southeast Asia is Burakarai. It's got serene white sand beach with emerald green water. And I want to go again. Right, right, right. As a, as a Filipino, uh, Thanks for promoting. <laughs> yeah, I'm Filipino at heart, so I think everything right. turns into Philippines. What has been your favorite activity to be stressed? Okay, I'm a big foodie, so mm. I like to explore good food or explore different cuisines. That really de- de-stresses me out. Since, you know, you said you're Filipino not hard, like any particular <laughs> dish that really helps you to de-stress. I like eating pork, so I think the pork barbecue is something that I like there. Anything that you've read or taken up recently that you'd like to recommend for listeners? Yeah, so in recent times, I read a very interesting book called The Power Law. I hope you read that one. So I would recommend to anyone who wants to enter into VC or the startup ecosystem, it gives interesting anecdotes of early stage VCs in the 1950s and about the startups at that point, they were startups like Apple, Google, Uber, WeWork, and successful VC figures. So it explains, you know, the extreme ratio of success and failure in the VC world. So that's why it's called the Power Law. Definitely read Power Law and watch something ventured and then join. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see I'm totally connected to the startup world. <laughs> right, right, right. On that note, thank you so much, Rui, for for coming on the show. It was great to not just learn about your experience at IBA, but also learn about how you've grown in, you know, an intonic, almost like, dare I say, like a Padawan <laughs> in the fintech space and share a little bit of your perspectives on fintech in, in the Philippines and the region, which have been really interesting to hear. And also your own practices when it comes to filtering out potential M&A opportunities, deal opportunities and partnership opportunities in the markets that you're working on. So. Yeah, thanks again for coming on the show, Jury, and hopefully we'll have we'll hear more great stuff from from Tonic in the coming months. Sure, and hopefully, thanks a lot for having me again. Yeah.